Thank you. Good evening, really. I'm really excited about what God's going to do amongst us tonight. I'm making good time for us to engage with him, to glorify him. We're going to talk about worship because worship is just central to Christian life. The life of a Christian is a life of worship. We're called to live our whole lives as living sacrifice to him. Every moment is worship. But also the Bible shows us there's something really special when we as Christians, as a church family, gather and we worship together. We worship as one. And that's particularly what we're focusing in on tonight. Worship is important for all Christians because of what God's done in us. We're, we're going to see the very end goal of the gospel is that you and I might become worshippers. We might be restored to a worshipping relationship with God. Worship is also really high value for us as King's Church. Across all our venues in Hastings, here at Six, in Bexhill, in St. Leonard's, as we move into there. Worship and our corporate worship together is a huge value to us. I think really because of our heritage, because of where we've come from. So we're part of a large family of churches right across the world called New Frontiers. And New Frontiers, one of the reasons this is a family church was birthed was with a, an attempt to, to reclaim biblical worship. It was birthed a number of decades ago when in many of the established churches, the work of the Holy Spirit in our times of corporate worship wasn't really embraced, wasn't really invited and welcomed. The spiritual gifts that today we might take for granted having in our meetings, some things we're going to talk about today, weren't really embraced, weren't really invited. And people started to see in the Bible, they looked at it and they said, there seems to be something more. It seems to be that God wants to be so clearly with us as we worship. It seems that he wants to give us gifts to help us as we worship. And so they began to worship together in small groups, in houses at first. And this grew into churches and movements and families of churches. And so generations who've come before my generation certainly have fought, really, for the kind of times of worship that we enjoy today. And it really was a fight. Many of the people who were still in this church were ostracized, actually, for worshipping in this way. They were accused of being in a cult for worshipping in this way. And actually, the freedom that we have now to enjoy worship where the Holy Spirit is with us, and the spiritual gifts are right there helping us worship, is really living in the goodness of what other people have won for us. So this is a very precious thing to us, really, for the church. And for me, as one of a slightly younger generation, I'm determined that we must not lose what our previous generation have fought for us to enjoy. And so what I want to do tonight, really, is just to lay down a bit of a biblical picture of what is corporate worship, our worship together, about? What does the Bible teach us about it? And then we're going to talk about some practical stuff. How do we put it into practice? And then we're going to do it. So I'm going to answer three questions. I'm going to ask, well, what is corporate worship for? What should corporate worship look like? And then how do I as an individual play my part in our times of corporate worship together? So first off, what is corporate worship for? There are actually two answers we get to that question when we ask that question of the Bible. The Bible tells us that our corporate worship is for God, and at the same time, it is for us. First thing, ultimately and most importantly, our times of worship are for God. Actually, at their heart, the purpose, the reason for worshiping together is that we might glorify God. To glorify God means to recognize how supremely good he is and to declare that. Sometimes people use the word glorify in other contexts. You might talk about glorifying violence. And if you're saying someone is glorifying violence, you're kind of saying that they are giving it credit. They're esteeming it. They're saying it's a good thing. When we say we're glorifying God, we're saying we're saying he is the best thing. We're declaring his goodness. We're esteeming him. We're praising him. We're worshiping, loving, and adoring him. And we glorify God as we worship together not because he needs it. God doesn't need anything outside of himself. He is, by definition, a self-sufficient being. That's what it means for him to be God. It's not that God has made us as slaves to try and meet some need in him because he needs to receive worship from us. We don't glorify God because he needs it. 
We glorify God because he's worthy of it. Because it is right and it is fitting. It is right and fitting that we praise what is most praiseworthy. And actually, as we think about the gospel, which is the good news of what God has done in sending Jesus, we see that the whole gospel is about worship. The problem we're saved from was a wrong worship. And what we're saved into is a relationship of right worship. Because you see, the problem of what the Bible calls sin, of rebelling against God, the thing we need saving from, was a misdirected worship. It's a choice to worship the created rather than the creator. Whereas as the creatures of the creator, we automatically have obligations to him. It's right and fitting that we worship him. But sin is a failure to do that and actually a choice to worship something else. So we see this as an example in the Old Testament. When God has rescued his people out of Egypt, he gathers them at Mount Sinai. He gives to them the law. It's going to be the terms of their relationship with him. Right at the very top of the list of the laws, he talks about worshiping him alone. He says to them, you shall have no other gods before me. And he says, you shall, make, you shall not make a carved image or any likeness of anything. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. He says, at the heart of a right relationship with me is to worship me alone. That he alone is worthy of worship, which means that by definition, the wrong way to react to God or to interact with God is not to worship him. The basis of sin is a failure to worship God. We see the same in the New Testament. When the Apostle Paul is writing to the guys in Rome in chapter 1, we looked at it last year, last um, autumn, he's talking about the wrath of God, his just condemnation of and punishment of sin being poured out against unrighteousness. And he says the problem there, the unrighteousness, the sin, is a failure to worship God. He says although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. They knew he's there, they can see something of what he's like, yet they don't give to him what they know they ought to. Claiming to be wise... They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images, resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Instead of worshipping the God, the creator, we worship created things down here. The problem we need saving from is a heart that's been orientated in the wrong direction, giving worship to the wrong things. And then so salvation, being rescued out of that, being transformed, being given a new heart by Jesus, is actually a restoration to a right relationship with God, and that's a relationship of worship. So again, we could see that in the Old Testament, when uh, God speaks to Pharaoh, the guy who'd enslaved God's people from whom he rescues them, he says to them, let my people go. Why? Well, that they may serve, or we could translate that, worship me in the wilderness. He wants to save them, wants to rescue them, because he wants to restore them to a relationship of worship to him. Or uh, the Apostle Peter, when he writes in the New Testament, he says all these amazing things that God has done for us, that we now are a chosen race, a, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. God's taken hold of us to be his. And he tells us the reason, the reason is that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. To proclaim the excellencies is language from the Old Testament, from the book of Psalms, a, a book of kind of poems and worship songs. He's saying God has saved you so that you can worship him. You can proclaim how good he is. You can worship and glorify him. And that means that our times of worship together, our life of worship, isn't kind of a side note to salvation. It's not the little corner of Christian life. Actually, it's the very end goal of why God has saved us as Christians. And in a sense, the gospel doesn't reach its true end. It doesn't come to full fruition if actually you and I, as followers of Jesus, don't become people who are sold out in worship to him. And so as we worship together in corporate worship, 
in the same way, actually, as we worship day by day in life, the primary aim is that we would glorify God. That means the way we kind of measure, was it a good worship time, was it, wasn't it? Isn't how do I feel? Isn't what did I get from it? It's was Jesus glorified? Did we declare how good God is and give thanks to him for that? That's ultimately what corporate worship is for. But at the same time as being for God, the Bible also says really clearly that our times of gathering together and worshiping are also actually for us. That God has designed it that actually as the overflow and the kind of uh, the overflow of worshiping him, we get good done to us. It is good for us. It, it builds us up. The Bible uses the word edify. So it kind of works good into us. We see this especially when Paul writes to the guys in Corinth. And in chapter 14 in 1 Corinthians, he's talking about their times of worship together, talking about their use of spiritual gifts, which we'll come on to in a minute. And he kind of gives this controlling principle, the thing which whatever they do, they should always be thinking, which should guide their decisions and what they do together. And it's the principle of, well, does it build up the church? Does it do good to each other as you do it? He says, so with yourselves, since you're eager for the manifestations of the Spirit, for spiritual gifts, strive to excel in building up the church. Later on, he says, let all things be done for building up. He says this time together is to glorify God, and as that happens, it should be doing good to us, doing good to our souls, building us up. In Ephesians 5, in other Paul's letters, he says a similar thing. He says that we are to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And he says that as we do that, we're going to find that we're addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, and we're singing and making melody to the Lord with our hearts. He says we should be addressing one another. Now, I don't think he means get up in someone's face and sing a song or a psalm or a melody to them. He says we're singing and making melody to the Lord, to God with our hearts. But as we do so, we're also singing to each other. As we sing to God, we're hearing each other. We're reminded by each other of who God is. Reminded of what God has done. We're stirred by each other's response to him, which spurs us on to worship him more. Worshiping together does us good. We worship him, but amazingly, he wants us to be blessed by it too. And that's also why we really expect that as we gather, as we worship, God will meet us as individuals. He will speak to us. He will comfort us. He will draw near to us. He will work in us. He will do in us whatever we need. Because he's right here with us and he longs to build us up, to edify us, to do us good as we worship. So when we gather together, as we do week on week here on a Sunday, as we do in prayer contexts and connect groups in different places, when we worship as a group, ultimately we're doing it to glorify God, to give to him what he is rightly, rightly deserving of, thanks and praise and honor and worship. But we're also expecting at the same time, we're in faith, we know that it's going to do us good. God's going to bless us. It's going to build us up. It's going to do us good. So that's what corporate worship is for in a, in a kind of biblical picture. That's why we do what we do. That's why we make it a priority to have time together to worship him. But what about then, what does it look like? How do we actually do it? What should actually kind of be the content of our times together? Well, there's kind of two halves here, I think, to the Bible's answer. One thing the Bible's really clear about is kind of where this flows from, getting the right source for it. The Bible says to us that as we worship together, our worship is empowered by the Holy Spirit and it is fueled by gospel truth. It's empowered by the Holy Spirit, which means God himself, he comes and fills us. He lives inside of us as Jesus followers. He moves amongst us as we worship together and he helps us to worship, to glorify God. 
We saw that in that passage I just talked about from Ephesians 5, starting a bit earlier. He says, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, meaning it's going to lead to sinful excess, but be filled with the Spirit. And notice when he compares being drunk and being filled with the Spirit, he doesn't mean get your kicks from being filled with the Spirit and have these ecstatic experiences of being filled with the Spirit. He says being filled with the Spirit leads to sin, leads to debauchery. Uh, sorry, no, I think it's right. Being drunk leads to sin. I noticed, I noticed, I'm very tired, but I noticed. Being drunk leads to sin, it leads to debauchery, but being filled with the Spirit leads to self-control. It leads to the opposite. And then he says, as we're filled with the Spirit, that's when we're addressing one another. In these psalms, and these hymns, and these spiritual songs, we're singing, we're making melody to the Lord in our heart, and we're giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus. He's saying, actually, as a follower of Jesus, when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, it empowers worshiping you. Worship will bubble up out of you. It will flow up out of you as he is working there. That's why as we gather each week, we so often talk about the Holy Spirit. We pray that he come and he fill us. He come and move amongst us because we know that he helps us to glorify God and that he will help us to build each other up as we do that. Our corporate worship is uh, empowered by the Holy Spirit, and then it's fueled by gospel truth. It's truth which goes into our heart, and the worship comes as a response to truth. Worship is a response, which means you need to know what you're meant to be responding to in order to be able to make that response. So in a different letter, in Colossians this time, Colossians 3, Paul is talking about Christian living, what it looks like day by day to be a follower of Jesus. And he says, as a follower of Jesus, there are some things in your old life you've got to kind of put off. Stuff we don't do anymore. We take it off. We put it off. But then there's some things we come and we put them on. New things, new ways of living. And part of that, he says, is about thankfulness and it's about worship. He says, chapter 3, verse 15 onwards, and be thankful. He says, let the word of Christ, which means the truth of the gospel, dwell in you richly. Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Can you hear how similar that is to what he said in Ephesians? But in Ephesians, it's the spirit. Now it's the truth. He says, let the word of Christ, let the gospel, let the truth of what God has done for you in Jesus, who you now are because of what God has done in Jesus, let it dwell in you richly. Let it meditate, meditate on it in your heart. Let it marinate in your heart. Let it be there so that it will overflow into worship. It will overflow into thankfulness. Taking in truth as we worship is like putting on a fresh log or some new coal onto a fire. That fuel is needed to keep the fire burning. You want the fire to burn more, you need to put more fuel onto it. We put the truth into our hearts, which stirs us and excites us, so we respond in worship to God. And this truth, I, I describe it as gospel truth, but which I mean it's the truth of what God has done in Jesus, because actually it's what God has done in Jesus which most clearly shows us what God is like. If you want to really know God's heart, if you want to really get to know what is God like, look at Jesus. Look at what Jesus done. Look at what God the Father has done through him. That is the clearest revelation to us of what he's like. So that's what we do as we worship. We sing songs which remind us of truth. We read scriptures which remind us of truth. We're fueling worship that it might overflow from us. Corporate worship is empowered by the Holy Spirit and then fueled by gospel truth. That's kind of half, I think, of what the Bible tells us about what our times together as we worship should look like. The other half is the Bible's really clear that our times together should be characterized by spiritual gifts. 
by the Holy Spirit empowering us and enabling us with gifts, gifts which help us to do the aims of worship, to glorify God and then to build up one another. I've mentioned already that Paul has a long discussion of this in 1 Corinthians 14, where he's talking about their times of worship together, the role that spiritual gifts play, how they should kind of be used there. And in particular, he focuses in on two gifts. He focuses in on prophecy and the gift of tongues, or the gift of languages. And I think it's fair to say he seems to think they should be uh, very prominent in our times of worship, even though they're not the only spiritual gifts we'll actually have in action. When he talks about prophecy, he's talking about God speaking to us. A prophecy is where God speaks to an individual, so the individual can then communicate that to others. The person becomes almost kind of like a megaphone for God, repeating to us what God wants to say to us. Paul tells us that the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and their encouragement and their consolation. God meets us where we're at. He speaks to us. He does us good. It's part of that worship. It's for us. It builds us up. It edifies us as God speaks to us. And Paul says in this chapter that when that happens, when someone feels like, I feel God is saying this to me, to bring to us as a gathered people, Paul says that we should weigh those prophecies. But which he means actually we, we don't always get it 100% right. We, we prophesy in part. We don't always uh, fully understand what God has said or we don't always fully communicate it clearly. And so we weigh it, which means we kind of measure it. and think, does this seem to be God speaking to us? And firstly, we do that against the Bible. Because the Bible is the unchanging, true word of God. And so we say, well, here's what the Bible says. Here's what this prophecy says. And if the prophecy contradicts what the Bible says, the prophecy is wrong because the Bible is always right. It is always true. And then we might also measure it against other things that God has said to us and is saying to us and think, well, is this in the same line? Is this fitting with other things that God is saying to us so we know that God is speaking to us? And he's also really clear in this chapter That prophecy and the experience of kind of bringing a prophecy isn't this kind of ecstatic, out-of-control experience. It's not that God takes over a person and they become like a robot or they become like a a puppet in his hand. And they start saying these words they've never thought of before and they didn't know they were going to say. That's not what it's like. Paul says, actually, that prophets can share one by one, orderly. And he even says the spirit of the prophets are subject to the prophets. He's basically saying they're still totally in control. They can choose what they say when they say it. And so when God brings us something to bring, actually, we can control it. We can choose them to bring it. Sometimes the time when it comes won't be the time to bring it. Sometimes it will. But actually, he gives us the role to weigh that, to decide that. And we have the the power to choose how and when we bring that. And so we want to come as we gather together each week in a different context with a real expectation that God's going to speak to us. He told us to eagerly desire that we might prophesy. He wants to speak to us. And he said he's going to do that as we gather together. So we want to come with ears ready to listen to what he's going to say to us, ready to be encouraged, ready to be built up, ready to be spurred on in our worship and spurred on in our walk with him. And then the second spiritual gift that Paul kind of prioritizes in this chapter is what we call the gift of tongues, or maybe actually I kind of prefer to call it the gift of languages. Tongues just means languages in the same way we talk about someone's native tongue, meaning their native language. But it's not a very common way of talking about languages these days. And let's be honest, when most of us hear tongues, we think of the organ in our mouth, not a language. So I think a gift of languages helps us a bit more to kind of demystify and just understand what it is. And if prophecy is God speaking to us, then the gift of languages is the inverse. Is God helping us to speak to him? Is God stirring our spirits deep within ourselves to communicate heartfelt worship to him 
in a language that we don't actually understand. In this chapter of 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about it. He says, when I speak in a gift of language, he says, my spirit is praying. Deep down within my core, I'm praying, I'm speaking to God. But he says, actually, my mind isn't. Because my mind doesn't know what I'm saying. I don't understand the words. But God is empowering a deep expression of worship from deep within. But Paul's also really wonderfully pragmatic and a kind of really common sense guy. He says, well, what's the point of doing that in a corporate setting if other people can't understand what's being said? He says, if I come to you speaking in tongues, in languages, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? Later on, he says, if, if I come and I bring to you or someone else comes and brings a gift of language we can't understand, how can we say amen? How can we say we agree? How can we worship through that? And that's why he says when we gather together and we have a gift of language, we also wait for an interpretation that God will give to somebody in the room or maybe the same person who brought the gift of language a sense of what we're saying. So they can communicate in a language we know and we understand what that heart cry to God was. So we can then go, amen. We agree. We get to take the words and make them our own. We get to worship through them and say, yeah, yeah, God, I'm saying that too. I'm worshiping for you in that. That's why we'll always wait for an interpretation to come when a language comes in this context. Otherwise, it's kind of no point to it. Paul says, if any speaking a tongue, let someone interpret. He goes as far as to say, if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in the church and speak to himself and to God. And so remember, prophecy is God to us. Tongues is God stirring us to speak to him. That means that the gift of languages, when an interpretation comes, will always be us speaking to God. It will always be an expression of praise, an expression of worship. It will be from us up to him. The interpretation won't be God speaking to us. God doesn't speak to us in code. He's not like that. Why would he do that? He wants to speak to us clearly when he speaks through prophecy. But the gift of language is something special where he enables us to communicate something almost too deep for our own language. But he's not speaking to us in a, in a coded way. And you see this, I think, in the language Paul uses to talk about the gift of languages in this chapter. He refers to it as praying us to God, singing praise, as giving thanks. Every word he used to describe what's going on is always talking about us and our talking to God, not God talking to us. So we've got prophecy we want to be expecting for. The gift of language is expecting for a way that God enables us to worship him. But they're not the only spiritual gifts Paul talks about. He also mentions hymns, just meaning songs. He mentions lessons, which are probably kind of like a uh, short reading from the Bible and a quick explanation, that fuel we put on the fire, which then helps us to worship God. That's where he talks about words of wisdom, words of knowledge, healing, all kinds of different things. He says that we're a body. And your body has like, it's like 7,700 different parts or something. They do all kind of different things, but each one is needed for it to function well. And he says each one of us is like a body part. We're all different. We've all got different gifts. They'll give us different things at different times. But he also orchestrates it all so it works together. We, we need each other. He wants each of us to be involved. And this means that each of us can do this. If you're a follower of Jesus, the Holy Spirit has gifted you and will continue to gift you, wants to use you, it means we come expecting that any one of us can be used by God. God speaks to us. God stirs us. He gives us gifts to bless everyone else. So what does corporate worship actually look like, the kind of the content of it? It looks like these times where the Holy Spirit is empowering us, the truth is fueling us to glorify God, and where we're expecting that the Holy Spirit is moving, 
And his gifts are in action. There's prophecy, there's gifts of languages, there's words of knowledge, there's lessons in hymns, all this stuff, all of us working together and spurring each other on as we worship God. And maybe it's worth saying, that's why we kind of have our times of worship as we do. The reason we have an extended time of worship each week, rather than kind of a song and then do something else, and another song and do something else, is because we want to give time for the Holy Spirit to empower us. We want to give time for that truth to work deeper and deeper. It takes a bit of time sometimes to get into it, doesn't it? But it works deeper into us and helps us then to worship. And we want to make sure there is really good space for the Holy Spirit to do whatever he wants to do. And we really mean that. We want to leave him to guide us, him to have his way, him to do whatever he has planned to help us glorify God and to do us good. So the final thing, let me just do a bit on, well, how do we play our part? You might be thinking, this sounds amazing. What an amazing opportunity God gives us. What a great thing we get to do. But what does it look like for me as an individual in the corporate, in the group? How do I kind of get involved? Well, I've picked out, I think, it's four simple, practical points. There are so many more things we could say, I'm sure, but hopefully these give us a good start and they'll help us as we then go to put this into practice in a minute. The first thing, actually, I think that's really important to realize, really simple maybe, but really important, is we just need to recognize that worship is a choice and then we need to make the choice. Actually, worship, we've said, is about glorifying God and that's something you can choose to do. That isn't dependent on how you feel. It isn't depending on your circumstances, your situation. Actually, we can do that, and God calls us to do that, whatever is going on. And actually, let me say as well, you know, when God says to us, even if you're really struggling, I want you to come and glorify me, he's not saying that because he's some sort of hard taskmaster. He says that because he knows that it will do us good. He knows that actually when things are really tough, when we are really struggling, the best thing we can do is to look up to him, set our gaze on him, to worship him, because we will be built up. He's told us that's what this time is about. We're going to be built up. He's going to do us good in it. That means it's so important to come on a Sunday. That's actually maybe the first step, actually. How do you get involved in corporate worship? Come on a Sunday. If you get to the end of Sunday, you think the last thing I want to do now is go to Six o'clock Church, then the best thing you can do is go to Six o'clock Church, because God will do you good. Being with other Christians, worshiping him together, will do you good. That's one thing. And then I think we'll ask the Holy Spirit to fill you, and feed on truth. If what the Bible has told us is true about this empowerment of the Spirit, the fueling of the Spirit, then that of the truth, then we need that. Ask the Holy Spirit as we start to worship. Say, Holy Spirit, come fill me, come stir me, come empower my worship, and put truth into yourself. Look at the songs we're singing. Kind of look, hey, what is this song telling me about what God has done for me, about what He is like? Listen to scriptures that are read or prayers that are said. Think, what is this telling me about what God has done for me? What's the the fuel I can take hold of? Open your own Bible. Sometimes in times of corporate worship, I've got my Bible open. It's not actually because I'm particularly thinking of bringing anything publicly. It's because I'm aware I need some more fuel on my fire. I need something to help me get going. And so I'll just open up. I've got a few go-to places. I'm going to read the Bible. I'm going to remind myself what God is like. I'm going to remind myself what he's done for me. Remind myself how he feels about me. And it helps me to turn my heart to worship. It helps me to worship him. Bring a Bible. It's going to help you to worship God. And then I've said, expect that God wants to give you spiritual gifts. And I mean that for every one of us who's a follower of Jesus, expect that God wants to give you gifts. God wants to use you. He says we're a body, we've all got a part to play. 
And I know the reality is that in a setting like this, in a size of this, not every one of us might get to share something publicly every week, but don't therefore come assuming that God isn't going to use you on that week. He will if you're a follower of Jesus. He's giving you gifts. Come with ears open. Come with a heart open. Come with an expectation that God has gifted you, that he's going to give you those gifts and he wants to use you. And then my final thing really is just be active and be proactive. This, I guess, links to the worship as a choice and make the choice thing. But actually when we come and worship corporately, each one of us needs to say, yeah, I'm in for it. I'm, I'm devoting this time to doing this. I'm devoting this time to God. And particularly, I think, be active, be proactive, both with your voice and with your body. Be active with your voice. Be active when we sing together. You know, God loves it when we kind of unite as one and we declare praise to him. But he also loves it when actually you as an individual tell him exactly what's in your heart. Tell him exactly what you want to say to him. And so, you know, between songs, think to yourself, what do I want to say to God on the basis of what we've just sung, what we've just thought about? When a scripture is read, think to yourself, okay, what's my personal response? What am I now going to say or am I going to sing maybe to God in response to that? He wants to hear from you as an individual, as well as hearing from us as a corporate body, as we sing together, as we speak together as one. But then also, be active, be proactive by using your body. We are embodied beings, which means our body is an important part of us. We often forget that. We live in a culture which really downplays the body. You know, the true self is inside. That's what really matters. The body is just a kind of annoying thing we're trapped in for the time being. And actually, it's very easy for, as Christians to believe the same, that we do have a soul and we do have a body, and we can downplay the body and think the soul is the important bit. The soul is the bit that worships God. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says we're meant to be embodied, body and soul, working together. They are intertwined, and so we worship with our whole being. And, you know, it's easier to get your body to move sometimes than it is to get your soul to move. But if you get your body moving, your soul will follow suit. That's why our worship is very physical. So we might lift our hands. We might be declaring. We might be receiving. We might be surrendering. We might clap. We might dance. We're doing things with our body, which is saying, even if I don't feel like this, my body's going to respond in this way. And actually, you know what? Your feelings will follow on. There was a time a few months ago here in Sit Scott Church, we were having quite a kind of upbeat time of worship. We were kind of praise uh, all those songs that talk about dancing. And I was just standing there thinking, I do not feel in that place at all. I was really miserable, really, really struggling with some stuff. I was like, God, I, I'm not up for dancing. And frankly, I was standing there thinking, this isn't working for me. Am I going to stay? But I just felt this little nudge of, but you know what? God's still worthy of worship, regardless of how I feel, regardless of how the week's gone. And I wanted to worship him. I, I really did. And I just felt this nudge of actually, you know, if I start moving my body, that's the best thing that's going to help me to actually worship him. And so I started to dance. I started to hop, you know, dance, dance, come on. <laughs> but I started to move. And, you know, it didn't solve my problems. I wasn't walking on cloud nine when I left that night. But it did do me good. It did build me up. And I did leave going, I know I've glorified God. And I know that I'm going to tell him how much I love him, even though things are difficult. And I know that's going to help me and sustain me as I go out of this place, as I keep on going. There's actually real power in using your body. Get very active in worship, and it will help you as worship, in worshiping God. You know the band could start coming back up. I'll try and shuffle forward for you. So our times of corporate worship are just so important. It's such a privilege. You know, God could have just said, go off, do this Christian life thing on your own, just worshiping your own. And he doesn't. He says, come and worship as a family. And he says, and as you worship and glorify me, 
you're going to be done good. How amazing is that? He says, actually, I want to do you good as well. We come to glorify him, come to build each other up, to bless each other in it. We're welcoming the Holy Spirit saying, come and empower us, come and be with us. We're thinking of all the wonderful things that God has done for us, putting fuel and fuel and fuel on the fire that it might overflow, it might overflow in worship to him. And we're coming expecting that he's going to move amongst us. He's going to speak. He's going to empower us for this task. And that's what we're going to do now. We're in faith that God is here, that he's going to help us as we do this. Maybe, maybe we should just stand as we start to engage with him. As I was kind of said at the beginning of the meeting, you know, if you feel you've got something you want to bring, a spiritual gift maybe, just drop down to the front. It's helpful for us to use the mic so everyone can hear and we can kind of see how things are fitting together. But just as we stand, I would love us just to start actually by raising our voices. Just start speaking out the things you are thankful to God for. Remind yourself of what God has done for you. You might want to speak, you might want to sing. We're just going to start murmuring up a murmur of praise and the bands are going to lead us as we worship God. Father, we thank you for all your goodness to us. Thank you for your grace and your mercy. Thank you we stand here as those who are